I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is about 60 miles northwest of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the closest large city to us, but we didn't go there very often. Philadelphians like to call their city the city of brotherly love. But we listened to the daily news, and it sounded more like the city of violence, gang murders, drug dealing, and organized crime. I'm not sure that Philadelphia today feels any different from the other Philadelphia felt to the Christians of about 2,000 years ago. This is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. It's Revelation 3, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one takes away your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Philadelphia, the old one, was founded in about 140 BC and named after its founder, Attalus Philadelphus. It was a city that was created with a very specific mission, a mission that was given to it by its founder, and the goal was to transmit Greek culture and language to the people of Asia. And it was very successful in its mission. By the first century AD, Greek was the dominant language in the area. In fact, Philadelphia was eventually nicknamed Little Athens. They were so successful in importing Greek culture. There was a large Jewish population in Philadelphia. And when the Roman Empire surpassed the Greek Empire, the privileges enjoyed by the Jews were extended to the Jews in this part of the world. Philadelphia is situated 75 miles from the Aegean Sea. Philadelphia, however, was also very near a fault line with frequent volcanic activity, which caused earthquakes. The fear of earthquakes shaped the identity of the city. In AD 17, a severe earthquake destroyed 12 area cities, including Philadelphia. The memory of this tragedy was reinforced every time there was any tremor in the earth. And all the inhabitants of the city would get up and flee 
out of the city at the first sign of any movement in the land because of their fear of things falling on them and the catastrophes that, atten that attended that earthquake back in 17 AD. There was a spirit of fear about the city because of the insecurity the people felt. The church of, the, of Philadelphia could have easily submitted to this fear, but they did not, which is surprising because they faced serious obstacles. They were aggressively persecuted by the Jews in this area. The Christians had been shut out of the synagogue. That means they were shut off from fellowship of former friends and they were shut off from worship. To become a Christian in Philadelphia in that day was like becoming a Christian in a Muslim country today. Being shut out of the synagogue meant a loss of the Jewish protections under Roman law. Think of the loss, think of that kind of loss in today's term. Think of what it would mean to the church if we lost our tax exempt status, if we lost federal protection from discrimination, if we lost the freedom to worship as we pleased, if we lost the freedom to assemble. Those are all the kinds of losses that the church in Philadelphia understood. Another obstacle seems to be, according to what John writes, is that this church was short on power. It probably meant few people, tiny church, and few resources. That means that whenever we think of ourselves in terms of small, short on resources, we should look at what God promises to the church of Philadelphia. Because in a lot of ways, we have similarities. It may also be true that the church was scattered by the influence of earthquakes. Maybe folks transitioned through Philadelphia once they sensed the fear of the place. Maybe be better to start a business in some other town. A, a high transitioning rate through Philadelphia. And don't forget, of all the obstacles, Philadelphia is closely tied to the emperor Tiberius because Tiberius helps them rebuild the city after the earthquake of AD 17. And so they feel an obligation to Tiberius. And so Tiberius has his own temple, emperor worship is expected, and if you didn't worship the emperor, the emperor Tiberius, it's sort of like saying, don't you care that he gave us all this money to rebuild our city out of the rubble? You owe him allegiance. And so the church in Philadelphia, who would not bow to emperor worship, were sort of ostracized and, well, it sort of felt like they were out of step with their neighbors because they didn't have the kind of allegiance to Caesar that good citizens ought to have. When you hear what Jesus has to say to this church, you hear the very first promise. I will set before you an open door. So much had been closed to them, synagogue, friends, fellowship, participation in their city, opportunities for business. When every earthly door is closed, Jesus is an open door for his people. Don't ever forget that. Open doors of fellowship with Christ is a significant thing, but it's not just an open door of fellowship that he's promised here. This is also an open door for evangelism. By the time the seven letters are written by John, we're at the end of the first century, 
and Tiberius, the emperor, was assassinated back in 37 AD. So we're, we're 60 some years past the end of Tiberius' reign. So there's new emperors around and they've completely forgotten about Philadelphia. The shine of emperor worship is not what it once was. The, the opportunity created by Caesar for Philadelphia doesn't last. But the open door that Christ brings will never be shut. That's the promise for us. Christ has not forgotten his church, even if Rome has forgotten Philadelphia. Whenever the church looks around to see what is happening in society, they have choices to make. They can either succumb to the panic and the loss that they see everywhere around them and join in the anxiety, or they can focus on the power of God and trust that God will make a way for them, a way for them to survive and a way for them to participate in the mission of God. This is what's wonderful about Philadelphia. That's why we love this passage of scripture, right? Instead of a spirit of fear that could easily just crush the church of Philadelphia, Philadelphia has a spirit of optimism. They know the door is open by Christ and they see what Christ provides. And so they focus with optimism on what God can do in spite of their lack of resources, in spite of their poverty. It makes me ask the question, what will happen to us when our resources become limited? What will happen to us when we no longer enjoy the protection of the state? You see, I think that's coming sooner than we think. I predict that I will live to see the day when Nazarene pastors will no longer have the power to officiate at state-sanctioned weddings. I see that day coming. I predict that property tax exemptions for churches will slowly be removed because I know this process has happened in some other states. I predict that churches will be sued for discrimination for not hiring workers who are not Christian someday soon. These days are coming. And we have to ask ourselves, who will we be when persecution and difficulty and strife comes to us? Will we be optimistic like the church in Philadelphia based on the promises of God? Or will we succumb to a spirit of fear? How will we respond to increasing persecution? We like to think that we'll respond well. But recent history shows that we are more likely to become self-absorbed than more Christ-like. Think about the way we responded to COVID. Many Christians embraced a spirit of fear and disappeared. Sure, there was reason for concern and adequate precautions needed to be taken, but for many, that fear caused them to stop reaching out to others to stop communicating, to focus all of their attention on how to take care of themselves and their family. And when others didn't provide the care for them they thought they should have, they cut off relationships. Many people were in that category. Those actions were a result of fear. Of course, there were others who acted just the opposite of that, but were equally motivated by fear. They believed that 
COVID precautions were simply the overreach of the government. And so they began an aggressive campaign against the restrictions that governments put in place because they were afraid of government overreach. And those were reactions based on fear of a different thing. It is so easy for the people of God to mistake wisdom for fear. And it's so easy to mistake foolishness for faith. I mean, how do you know which actions of ours are based in fear or something else? And I think it's sort of simple to discern when I'm acting in fear and when I'm, acting not, when I'm not acting in fear. This is the diagnostic question. Which actions create community, support, and care for others? Those actions spring from love. Which actions are marked by demands, divisions, critical judgments, and power leveraging? Those actions are motivated by fear to some degree. The church is never successful when it succumbs to a spirit of fear. You remember the words of 2 Timothy 1.7. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice or of fear, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Today, you and I know that we live and work in an atmosphere where we have endured many losses. We think about who we were 20 years ago and who we are today. We know in the culture at large, we've lost the structure of traditional families. We've lost institutional trust. We don't trust denominations or leaders, even churches anymore the way we once did. We've lost the ability to trust others. We've lost clarity surrounding the truth. 25 years ago, we didn't so much debate whether gambling, for example, was a vice. I mean, that's why Las Vegas is called Sin City, right? We labeled it for what it was. But today, we're just not quite sure as a culture. In fact, it seems there is an aggressive campaign to label vice as virtue, to redefine what is evil as good. And we live in a day where pluralism is so widely broadcast. All the competing ideas just tend to be equal to one another, regardless of how ridiculous they might be. If someone believes it, well, it's truth for them, so it must be truth equivalent to all truth that's ever existed, and, and we get lost in the pluralism at times. But in spite of all the losses we've endured, we have an open door. An open door to God in fellowship, and that open door means there is always an open door for evangelism, for telling the story of Jesus Christ, to telling the story of his love for others, for telling the story of his acceptance of others that they can also enter the kingdom. And we know that this God of the open door is the God of new things. So we have confidence in the one who holds the door open for us. So after six sermons from Revelation, you know by now that every one of the letters ends with something like, he who has ears, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The point of this whole exercise is simply this. 
what might the spirit of the Church of the Nazarene in Manchester be? How do we think of ourselves? What's the sum total of our actions and worship? What does it say? What does it feel like for someone who's new and visits this church and begins to watch how we operate together? Are we boundary keepers? If the story I hear of much of the Church of the Nazarene in 50s and 60s, we were once that kind of a church, I'm hoping that we are now growing past that to a place where we are passionate about Christ and passionate about his mission. Are we a group focused on materialism? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure we are more materialistic than anyone else around us, but I, I think perhaps we have forgotten the meaning of sacrificial giving, of, of fasting, of living simply. I know that we're more entertainment oriented than we've ever been before. Between cell phones and various types of screens and streaming services, we are more easily distracted from the work of the kingdom than we've ever been. Are we a group that has accommodated to the standards of the world? I'm afraid that often I think that much of the church is just as angry as the society around us. At least that's what I see in social media. We want to exert power more than we want the option to exercise love. We want to control culture rather than to love people of every culture. Are we a group that no longer exercises love? Are we folks who just parrot the words of the gospel without putting into action the love we are required to hold and express for our neighbors? Do we look good to those on the outside, but inside we're dead to the mission of God, having become useless to him? Or are we a group that is so confident in our own ability that we no longer feel the need to rely on God for anything? We can succeed on our own, we think. We don't need a vital link to the Holy Spirit because we're so gifted and talented and resourced and that, that's not us, is it? Or are we so afraid of the chaos of culture and the attacks of the enemy that we have hunkered down behind our church walls feeling safe, but no longer taking the risks that living as salt and light require? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the spirit of the Church of Manchester is. But you may know. The spirit speaks. And if you, if I, if we have ears to hear what the spirit is saying, then perhaps we have an inkling of where we reflect more the churches of Revelation than we do the desires of the Holy Spirit for us. If that's true, we repent, right? But this is my hope. I am praying that the Church of the Nazarene in Manchester will be marked by the spirit of optimism. That God is in fact doing a new thing here. That God has provided an open door for us of relationship and of mission. That we would be people who really did believe that nothing is too difficult for him. That we would rely on a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that we would be men and women of action. That is love in action. Over the next six weeks we're going to start an adventure.
we are going to purposefully reflect on all that God has done for us. And we are going to praise him for what he has accomplished here over the last 125 years in Manchester. This anniversary celebration that begins next week is not about what we have done. It is about what he has done. And I'd like to ask you to reflect on something God has done for you or for your family through the ministry of this church. And I would encourage you to write it down. If you don't write much, have a friend take dictation or make Pastor Julia write it out for you. She can type really fast. But I would like to collect a bunch of stories, stories that we can share at our banquet on September 10th. And I'm hoping that these stories combined with other activities will help kindle a spirit of optimism among us and propel us on to the greater faith that we need in order to serve God. I've been reading the histories of this church for several months now in preparation for this event. The answers to prayer that God has given to this church over the last 125 years are nothing short of miraculous. But we forget, right? And we get nervous about our own future. And we think, what are we gonna do? Or how is God gonna solve this? Or what it is? But I think there's something about our testimony together that anchors our faith in Christ that helps us remember that he is faithful in every generation that his love for us doesn't know any ending, that we can count on his faithfulness today and for all of our future days. And that should stir a great optimism in us, just waiting to see what God will do. One of the old pillars of Eastern Nazarene College used to say, God will never waste a consecrated life. I believe that to be true that as we give ourselves to him, he will use us, he will put us into action and we will see his love expressed, we will see the miraculous working of his spirit and we will know the joy of participating with God in building his kingdom here and around the world. If, while you are considering all that has been said and all that God has done, the spirit reminds you that perhaps some of the spirit you are carrying is not positive. If you are caught in something that won't please God, the joy of these letters is whenever God criticizes, he also states his patience and his willingness to receive us back again, right? The story's ending is not written and if we perceive the Spirit saying something to us that doesn't really reflect him, he says, repent, ask forgiveness, I will forgive. My arm is not too short to save you. Come home. And together, we can walk into the new thing that Jesus Christ will do here among us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Our hearts are filled with joy as we consider all that you have done and all that you are. We are so grateful for your patience with us, your kindness to us, 
the way you care for us. We are so thankful for your promise that you will hold this door open for us and that we will continually have fellowship with you and that you will continually engage us in mission. And so, Lord, we say, call to us, speak to us, use us, show us your ways. Let us, dear Lord, enjoy fellowship with you that puts us in action with great joy. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing a song of worship as we close? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Holy, holy is He Sing a new song To Him who sits on Heaven's mercy seat Worthy is the song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings you are my everything and I will adore you Flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you, the only wise King. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Struck wonder at the mention of your name. 
Jesus, your name is power, breath of living water, such a marvelous mystery. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. May you know the confidence of the promise of the open door, that your fellowship with Christ will continue without ceasing now and to all eternity, to his glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.